1: Welcome back to another episode of Abitual Insight. I'm Clément Fouchard, partner in the International Arbitration team at Smith. Today, I'm very happy to have Paul-Jean Lecanu uh, with us to uh, discuss some issues regarding investment arbitration in Africa, a perspective from an institution. Paul-Jean, I will uh, say a few words about you. So, hi, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Clement. So you are a senior counsel and team leader at the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, and you worked there for over 10 years and having been focusing on several world regions, especially Africa, which will be the topic of today's episode. And you are also co-founder of Africab, a non-profit organization with a focus on the promotion of arbitration in Africa. And you are also currently uh, its co-president. In addition to that, you are also a member of the Advisory Council to the Africa Education Academy, which is another African organization that has been extremely active on the continent and beyond. So let's start with uh, some background information related to our today's topic. Paul-Jean, could you Maybe put things into context and give us an idea of the African participation in EXIT proceedings.
2: Thank you, Clément. Thank you for the introduction as well. So I think it's fair to say that African states have been key participants in the EXIT dispute resolution system from, from the beginning. They had a very active role in the negotiation and drafting of the exit convention and then its entry into force. High-profile African jurists like Attorney General Elias of Nigeria participated in those negotiations and regional consultative meetings. And importantly, 15 of the necessary 20 ratifications for the exit convention to come into force came from African states. So Tunisia, for example, was the first state to, to sign the convention and Nigeria was the first to ratify it. Now, in addition to that, African states were often the first to test the provisions of the convention, partly because the, there were more African member states than states from any other region at the, at the beginning. And so they were involved in foundational cases. There are many examples. I, I'll just mention a few. There was the first contract-based case, the, the Holiday Inn in Morocco case, the first case based on a national investment law, SBP in Egypt. And I should also mention that the tribunal that upheld jurisdiction under a BIT for the first time in AAPLN Sri Lanka was composed also of a majority of arbitrators from the continent. So now today we have, we have 46 African member states. That means that they account for close to 30% of all African member states. And that means also 30% of the vote on the Administrative Council of ICSID. That's the, that's the governing body that votes on a number of things, including the adoption of new arbitration rules. And I should probably mention that uh, Angola is the newest state signatory to the to Exit the convention. Angola signed on the 14th of, of July 2022. Very recent news. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. And we continue to receive expressions of interest from, from states, including from, from the Africa region.
1: Okay. And, and so this is a sort of a really the background against which we can continue to discuss. What about the, the caseload? Do you have statistics to share so that we, we understand a bit more, more precisely the share, the, the shadow weight of the, of the African continent in your activity?
2: Yes, yes. And I'll try not to drown you in, in, in figures. <laughs> if, we, if we look up to December 31st of, of last year, the, the center had registered 870 cases under the exit convention and, and additional facility rules. And so 22% of the total caseload involves African states as respondents. So that's about a fifth of all cases are cases involving African states. Now, if we look at just intra-African cases, so cases involving an African investors and an African states, we have a little less than 6% of cases. And so th- these these are you know these are the broad figures,
1: uh, mm-hmm. if you will, when you look at the caseload. And if you look at uh, the basis of the consent, because I know that you are also following uh, uh, that uh, at ICID. Yes, that's that's right.
2: And uh, and here again, I think it's particularly interesting to look at the, the global level, the cases involving African states, and then the intra-African caseload, because this it, it reveals a, a distinguishing feature, I think, of, of cases involving African parties. If you look at the, at the global caseload, you'll see immediately the dominance of treaty-based arbitration. Over 75% of cases are based on investment treaties and the rest. So 15% of cases are based on investment contracts and 8% on investment laws of the host state. Now, if you focus just on the cases involving African states, the distribution is different. There are less cases based on investment treaties. They account for about 50% of the caseload, and more cases based on dispute resolution provisions in contracts and investment laws. In particular, you have 36% Of cases based on investment contracts. Then, if you look at this narrower pool of cases, intra African cases, the difference there is even more striking. You have only 32% of cases based Mm -hmm. on treaties, and 46% based on contracts, and 22% on investment law. So, you really have, as I said here, a, a, a distinguishing feature of cases involving African parties. Now, there's, I think, an important point to make, and that's perhaps one of the uh, one of the explanations for this difference. Several studies have shown that among the 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 BITs, the Bilateral Investment Treaties concluded by African states, there is a far greater share of treaties concluded with non-African states than there are intra-African BITs. And similarly, there's a greater share of BITs with non-African states that are in force than there are uh, intra-African BITs in force. The, the share of intra-African BITs in force has not reached 30%. And so that would explain why the caseload based on, uh, based on treaties is, is significantly lower than the figures, the global figures that we've just discussed.
1: Thank you. It's, uh, it's always interesting to have the figures and then to interpret them uh, and, and uh, distinguish what are the, the trends or the explanation, the sort of underlying explanation. So, so thank you for this insight. Now, I mean, we know that uh, in 2022, there's been a, a very big news at exit with the entry into force of the 22 amended rules, which went into effect on the 1st of July. So maybe having a member of the, of, of the team uh, with us, I cannot resist to ask you to briefly describe those uh, new features and what are the main objectives followed by the, by the new rules. That being said, I must say that we will uh, uh, also cover this specific issue in another episode, in another podcast. So uh, that's for the, for the listeners do not worry if uh, Paul-Jean uh, keep it uh, short uh, today because there will be more more to come. So yeah, Paul-Jean, in, in, in a few words, what's what's new? Yes, thank you, Kim. I'll, I'll, so I'll try to be brief.
2: First of all, I think it's important to have the overriding goal in mind that was really to modernize the process and and ensure that it stays fit for purpose uh, over the next decades while at the same time maintaining the strengths of the, of the existing system. So that meant incorporating a lot of the best practices and lessons that we have learned in case administration. And it also meant that we had to respond to some of the concerns raised in the public discussion on reform of, uh, of ISDS. So with that in mind, the rules had four main objectives. One, offering a a broader range of options of methods for investment dispute resolution. I'll just mention two examples. Uh, f- the first one, so a new set of mediation rules has been adopted. There was very broad support from member states throughout the amendment process for the adoption of this these mediation rules. The these mediation rules, I think, are are, are relevant in in several ways, including to African states. One of them being that. African states are parties to to treaties that expressly provide for mediation. And the second example I would mention is uh, the additional additional facility rules, which I'm sure will be discussed further, but these rules have been significantly updated to become more widely available to users of exit uh, arbitration and conciliation. So, that's the first, uh, the first objective, a broader range of dispute resolution options. The second one was achieving a greater efficiency and maintaining at the same time a procedural balance. So, many measures, many provisions have been put into place to increase efficiency, including an express duty to act expeditiously for parties and arbitrators, shorter time periods for various steps and time limits for tribunals to render awards and decisions, among other things. We also have new provisions on consolidation and coordination and and security for costs, and these are examples of how efficiency and procedural balance can go hand in hand. The third the third objective was the strengthening of provisions to avoid conflict of interests. So this we did this in three, three ways, mainly, expanding disclosure obligations on the part of arbitrators. Secondly, requiring that parties disclose the name of non-parties, providing them funding in the proceeding, what is commonly referred to as uh, third-party funding or TPF. And thirdly, updating the disqualification procedures. Finally, the fourth uh, objective, the last one that I will mention, was increasing transparency of proceedings. And the main goal there was really to increase the level of transparency where it would most affect or benefit the creation of a stable and consistent jurisprudence. So the focus was really on making all awards and decisions publicly available.
1: And you mentioned the, the broad support of the member states in, in this process. How did the African states react to that, their participation or their the engagement?
2: So I have to say that there was broad participation pretty much from all world region really to, you know to to achieve this because the, you know this this started <laughs> at the end of of 2016 beginning of 2017 and uh, there were two really two guiding principles participation by states and other users and transparency and so we had Working papers explaining the amendment proposals, comments made by states and the wider public—all of these were published on the ICSID websites. Meetings were held with the states to discuss the proposed rules, and this is how step by step, you know, consensus was was built. And, and African states participated in those meetings. The the African Union joined also the meetings as as an observer many commented uh, in, in writing. And so the, this, this whole process was, was particularly, uh, particularly constructive. And, 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 and it's because the participants, the member states in, in particular, uh, knew that this was something important. Eighth ministers administers a large uh, majority of investment cases. And, and as I said earlier, African states are involved in about a fifth of those cases. So it was, it was really a, a meaningful exercise.
1: Thank you. Thank you for, for, for sharing also this uh, insider view of the process. Now turning to really the continent and, and what's going on there in, in the investment field. Have you seen or are there any trends that you can discern in recent intra-African treaties and, and do they echo with some of the trends that you have highlighted? within the exit recent reform so is there any common trends we can see Uh, we know obviously and you mentioned the AFCFTA. we know that negotiators of that uh, free trade uh, agreement have uh, actually looked at other treaties as an inspiration so can can you can you see any trends here
2: yes Uh, thank you Clément. I think there has it's 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 fair to say that there has been a lot of treaty making activity a lot of initiatives at least in the past 15 years coming from the continent and in African African states if we try to discern some some of the trends because there there are there are several but uh, perhaps one of them would be the strong emphasis placed on on balance and by that I mean balance between the rights and obligation of host states on the one hand and investors on the other you see also increasingly references to sustainable development as an element to be taken into account to strike that balance in terms of substantive rights and obligation this uh, search for balance has meant uh, you know according to to various uh, commentators more detailed circumscribed obligations for states but also obligations express obligations for investors in treaties and in terms of procedural rights i think it's also fair to say that uh, we also see a broader range an interest in a broader range of methods i was mentioning mediation earlier as an example and we see express references to that in more recent treaties and so instruments such as the, the 2007 uh, Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa Investment Agreement, the COMESA agreement, or the 2016 Pan-African Investment Code, are examples. And and these, in turn, were, were said to have provided some inspiration for the experts and negotiators working on the investment protocol to the, to the African continental free trade area, the AFCFTA. So the, the AFCFTA is, is a major continent-wide treaty initiative. One of its key objectives is to create a single market to deepen economic integration on the African continent. It's been described as being meant to be the single rule book for trade and investment. These are the words of the uh, Secretary-General of the AFCFTA Secretariat.
1: And I know that the uh, CFTA has also, as you said, an investment side and that the protocol is actually under negotiation. Last April, some um, version of the of a protocol has been uh, leaked or has been uh, at least uh, published on, on internet. So looking at, the, at this draft, does it confirm the trends that you have highlighted, and, and if yes, in, in what extent?
2: Well, there are certainly some commonalities between the EXID amended rules, the 2020 rules, and the procedural provisions of this uh, zero draft or initial draft uh, protocol published in, back in April. So balance, for example... That's that's one of the objectives uh, stated in the preamble to the draft protocol, and that's really reminiscent of what you see in the report of the executive directors that's attached to the Exid Convention. This emphasis on on balance between investors and states. The third party funding provision of the the initial draft protocol contains extremely similar language to that of the twenty twenty two ICSID rules. So third-party funding, that's, that's certainly a commonality there. Mediation features also prominently in the draft protocol. It's, it's possible to go to mediation at any time in proceeding. And as mentioned earlier, it's one of the innovations of the new rules and, and, and part of ICSID efforts to, to offer a wide range of, of dispute resolution tools. One thing that's not directly related to the, to the new rules, but to, to another exit project. The draft protocol also contains an express reference to the code of conduct for adjudicators. And this is a joint project on which exit and Uncitrol are, are currently working. And so you find a reference to that. And in addition, I would, uh, you know, I would note that the uh, the draft protocol contemplates a, a a potential role for ICSID in terms of you know, case administration, arbitral appointments. So you see there as well necessarily a relationship between the new roles and the draft protocol as it stood then. And, and of course, you know, uh, ICSID is happy to provide supports to to African states in in, in the context of the of the CFTA.
1: Thank you, Jean. Also briefly, we have seen the the publication, the recent publication of the Africa Arbitration Academy Model BIT for African states. Any comments on that document, which has been uh, released?
2: Yes, that's 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 another important initiative, and I would say, I mean, there are many things to say about it, but. Here again, you see some similarities with both the new exit rules and the initial draft uh, protocol regarding uh, procedural rules. The Academy Model BIT contains provisions on counterclaim. They contain provisions on security for costs, again, on third-party funding. It also contemplates a role for exit and for the Secretary General regarding appointments. And I, I would say that these initiatives are perhaps, you know, a good illustration of how multilateral or, or collective processes can be mutually beneficial or enriching, partly through the, uh, the participation of, of states in those different fora.
1: Thank you. Maybe last question for you today. We've discussed potential future protocol on, on investment under the uh, scope of the EFCFTA. Then the question, which is probably still a perspective, how to address the coexistence of intra-African BITs, and you you mentioned those at the beginning of our discussion, and the protocol, the future protocol once ratified.
2: Yeah, I think I think there are two. It's 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 a very interesting question. I think there are perhaps two preliminary points. One, as you said. It's, it's an initial draft. So here, there, our discussion is really based on a, on a draft, which may may change. Secondly, if an investment protocol were to be ratified by a large number of African states, that would mean binding obligations and the possibility of dispute resolution between a significantly greater number of African states and investors under the, the CFTA protocol and it's important to remember in that context that there are very few intra-african BITs in force as, as you know you were uh, recalling and so if widely ratified the draft protocol is likely to bring about significant changes now what about that relationship between intra-african BITs and the draft investment protocol there is in the in the initial draft a a provision that addresses this issue that draft says that existing BITs between the state parties, so between uh, African states parties to the, to, to the protocol, are terminated upon entry into force. So that's one possibility. The provisions of the investment protocol would replace the provisions or the, the existing uh, intra-African BITs. Other options that have been discussed or or debated actually in in one of the academies and AFRICARB's webinar earlier this year was the possible progressive alignment of treaties with the adoption of similar or identical provisions and, and norms. So there wouldn't be a replacement, but rather an alignment Another possibility, of course, would be the, the status quo, no change, and a coexistence of norms. And each of these possibilities will raise its own sets of, of, of questions. So we'll see. Uh, you know, As the protocol negotiations continue to, to progress, we should, we should know which, which option will prevail.
1: Well, thank you, Pochon. I can see that there are many other continuous uh, issues to be discussed, and uh, that can be uh, the occasion to to reconvene uh, in the future. So thanks again for your time. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, and as I mentioned, there will be uh, more to come on Africa and arbitration. Thanks again. Thank you, Clément.
0: Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the costs of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com, or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.